Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to update you on the progress of the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. The good news is the program continues to grow. It has surpassed 17,000 monthly downloads. The fundraising goals have been modest, and they have been met with the support of around 75 listeners in total. But even though the goals are modest, the effects of these 75 people have been huge. Those 75 listeners supporting the show out of the 17,000 monthly downloads have assured the program a solid future. But even if just another 20 or 30 people who listened regularly were to pledge a dollar per episode, it would have a huge effect on the program's sustainability and on how ambitious it can be going forward. So take a moment and check out the Patreon campaign at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash between the covers. And a hearty thank you goes out to recent supporters, Jory, Brian, Mark, Amber, and C.A., Anne, a poet in Santa Fe, Carolyn, a poet in Portland, Amanda, a writer in New York, Alyssa, a writer in Texas, Heidi, an oboist, counselor, and writer, Susan, a computer scientist and aspiring writer, National, an art gallery and specialty shop here in Portland, Monica, a landscape architect and writer, and Ed, a physicist and chef in Boulder, Colorado. Thanks to all, and check out the supporter page at davidnaman.com slash patrons in order to explore the websites of all these interesting people. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and editor Susan DeFreitas. DeFreitas's fiction, nonfiction, and poetry have appeared in The Utney Reader, The Nervous Breakdown, Story Magazine, and Southwestern American Literature, among others. She's the author of the 2014 chapbook Pyrophytic and is a graduate of the Pacific University MFA program in creative writing. DeFreitas is also an editor who works at Indigo Editing and Publications and as a consultant and book coach for fiction writers seeking help with plot, structure, and characterization. She gives lectures and teaches workshops on such topics as on writing the natural world, on how to use the techniques from fiction when writing one's memoir, on strategies for editing, and on how to market one's book once it is finished. 
Susan DeFreitas is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her new novel, Hot Season, just out from Harvard Square Editions. Literary critic Jonathan Russell Clark, in his description of Hot Season, says, Imagine a novel by Donna Tartt, but edited by Gordon Lish, calling the book a wonderful mix of literary thoughtfulness and instinctual storytelling gifts. Oregon Book Award winning Carrie Luna says, Hot Season explores the charged terrain where the youthful search for identity meets environmental activism and the romantic illicit lure for direct action. And author Monica Drake calls Hot Season a beautiful book that asks the crucial questions, is it worse to destroy a dam or to destroy a river? Which is to say, how do we live our conscience on a crowded, corrupted planet? DeFreitas has captured what it means to be coming of age in a tangle of love, politics, and environmental degradation. Welcome to Between the Covers, Susan DeFreitas. Thanks for having me. So you've spoken about how Hot Season, while a novel is inspired by real events from your life, and in fact that all of your writing, even when you're writing speculative fiction, comes from real life experiences for you. So knowing this, it is interesting to revisit the publisher's copy for Hot Season, which begins this way. An outlaw activist on the run, a pipeline set to destroy a river, and three young women who must decide who to love, who to trust, and what to sacrifice for the greater good. So I can't help but ask, what are some of the real-life inspirations that led you to write Hot Season? Mm, that's a great question. Well, I will say, um, first of all, that um, one of the big inspirations for this book and the two that follow it um, in what I'm thinking of as the Green River Chronicles are the deaths of um, three kind of larger-than-life characters who were real people um, who were part of my community where I lived uh, in Prescott, Arizona. And so in this first book, um, Hot Season, that real-life person is, uh, was a man by the name of Bill Rogers. And uh, he is the inspiration for the fictional character, Dyson Lathe. Um, Bill was indeed an outlaw activist on the run, um, although <laughs> I would say almost no one who knew him uh, before the FBI raided the activist center that he had started in town, um, knew uh, that he wasn't, in fact, on the run. Um, We just knew him as kind of an inspiring local figure who was really uh, very much involved with a variety of local environmental struggles, among them the struggle to save the Verde River, which is the last free-flowing river in the state of Arizona. And so um, the three books of the Green River Chronicles, they're, they're all about that struggle to save that river, which uh, continues to this day. Mm. So I would say that um, was the main uh, inspiration, the real-life inspiration for the fictional events. Um, but you know, another, <laughs> another uh, real-life inspiration was... The house that uh, the book is set in, uh, that's shared by the three roommates, uh, Rel, Katie, and Jenna, that was definitely based on uh, my house um, on Campbell Street in Prescott. And though um, 
some of the dynamics between the characters were not, in fact, based on my time that I spent in college um, in Prescott, but rather on the uh, years that I spent uh, later on in the um, aughts, wherein I had, I myself was not in college, but I had younger roommates who were. So I, I kind of got to um, participate vicariously in their various college dramas um, as an older person. And I think that um, perspective is uh, reflected in the point of view of Rel, who is the main character. Hmm. Well, g- given that you have a strong connection um, to the, co- the book has a strong connection to your college experience mm-hmm. in Arizona and that there's a person you actually knew who, who deeply informs the outlaw activist. Uh, tell us a little bit about the decision making process to write this as fiction versus nonfiction and if any craft elements come out of of how you um, made that decision, if it was a difficult one or not. Um, I really think that I write fiction because I have a hard time sticking to timelines uh, the way that they actually occurred and details the way they actually occurred. And also this, I like to write about rumor Uh, real rumors as if they were facts, right? Mm -hmm. Because I have this sense of that, that what you believe to be true or what might be true, it is as much a part of your actual experience of life um, as anything else, right? So for instance, um, you know, the idea that there are, um, you know, there are undercover uh, FBI agents enrolled in college classes, That was brought to my attention by um, one of these younger roommates that I had when I myself was not in college, but she was. Um, And it was sort of her, uh, you know, speculation about various uh, rather attractive characters um, in school and whether they had the potential to be one of these um, kind of false characters, you know. I love that. I love the storytelling potentials of it. I didn't really care if it was exactly true, right? Um, although I found out later that that there is some truth to that. Um, so I love conflating the, the true and the imagined true and the possible together. Yeah. Because I think all of that is really part of our lived experience as human beings. Um, and... So I've always taken real things and told tall tales about them, you know, uh, really ever since I was a kid. So um, it's really much more difficult for me to write memoir or nonfiction because that means tracking down the details. Uh, Oh, was that thing that somebody said, was that actually true or did I just believe it to be true or did it not actually happen at the same time? I just remember it that way. I love how fiction allows us to create something artful out of what we remember or uh, imagined as if it all has kind of a similar level of truthfulness. Well, that's a great answer. And uh, uh, it brings up the question for me if did you have to uh, obscure the identities of anybody in particular and what techniques you use to do that? Or did you have to ask anybody's permission to, to create a character um, in, in the book that maybe they would recognize? You know, um, nobody in this book um, 
is uh, based on one person. They're all composite characters, right? So in that way, you know, I think if you happen to know any of the people who were involved in a composite character, you will recognize them. Um, But I also believe that anybody who knows well enough to see the influences in the characters will also recognize that they're not any single person, Mm -hmm. right? So for that reason, I didn't feel the need to uh, ask permission. Now, I I skewed a little closer to an actual single person with the character Dyson Lathe. But I felt a little uh, easier doing that because I, I, although he was part of my social circle, I did not know him that well. And again, part of what I took the liberty of doing here was to treat all the rumors about him as if they were true, right? Um, without verifying, oh, did X, Y, or Z actually happen? So I did a little bit, bit of research on him beyond what I knew. But I also took the liberty of conflating rumor. Um, and with such a, a larger-than-life character, there's a lot of rumor to work with. Yeah. So. Well, it was interesting reading it um, because it made me, even though it took place in Arizona, it made me uh, remember a lot of things about Portland in the 90s mm-hmm. around environmental activism pre-9-11. Mm-hmm. Since, since then, since... Um, since environmentalists or direct action environmentalists have been charged under uh, terrorism laws since 9-11, we don't really see the same sort of thing that you depict in the book and also that I remember in in Portland when, play, when groups like the Environmental Liberation Front or uh, Cascadia Forest Alliance actually had storefronts. You could walk in, even though there was, even though they were like, the leaders were hunted by the FBI no one knew who the leaders were, so there would just be the contact person in the storefront from for Elf that would uh, that everybody knew, probably like a Bill Dyson character, mm-hmm. um, but nobody knew how involved or how not involved they were. And it all seems strangely quaint now that mm-hmm. it was so out in the open. You could go to Cascadia Forest Alliance and support tree sitters that were uh, that are now probably people who would end up spending many years in jail if they. Uh, if they were to do the same thing from 10 years before. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know. And um, this book really is set at a moment, um, you know, post 9-11 where the the laws that had been passed uh, to offer uh, government agencies kind of more sweeping powers to uh, combat terrorism were being used uh, to target domestic activists, right? Particularly those um, employing direct action um, tactics, and sometimes, of course, those uh, using going beyond direct action to illegal action, right? right. Um, expressly direct illegal action, uh, politically motivated crimes of property, um, I think is the term also known as monkey wrenching, right? So yeah, you know, this book, um, it it is based uh, in the Southwest and has a strong sense of place in the Southwest, but it's also very much based in the Northwest, right? Because uh, Bill Rogers, the real-life activist who inspired the character of Dyson Lathe, was part of a uh, group of... Um, extreme activists um, based out of uh, Eugene, right, which 
uh, was a hotbed of such of environmental activism in the late 90s. Um, I believe there was actually the, the mayor of Eugene uh, put out a call for help to the federal government calling his city, you know, the, the U.S. capital of anarchy or something mm. along those lines, right? So there was really kind of a, a moment based around, in large part, trying to save some of the last old growth, right, um, from logging companies. And of course, Spotted Owl and all. There's a lot of stuff going on in the Northwest, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, there's, yes, uh, Bill Rogers went to school at Prescott College, which is also uh, the school that I attended. Um, and But he came to the Northwest, right? And that is where he really became an activist, right? And there's a wonderful article about um, kind of all of this, the storied pieces of, of Western uh, environmental activist history, Um it's a kind of a long-form uh, article from Rolling Stone called The Rise and Fall of the Eco-Radical Underground, right? And it talks about the group that Bill was part of. Um, they were called The Family. They were responsible for $45 million worth of damage to, like, all sorts of, I mean, meatpacking uh, factories, uh, logging company headquarters, any, any kind of... Uh, uh, corporation that they deemed to be destructive to the natural world they really took on. But, you know, as it kind of points out toward the end of that article, not only was it the anti-terrorism laws that really started to come down super heavy on folks um, taking these sort of extreme measures, it also, the results did not have the kind of lasting impacts that many of those involved in these type of actions envisioned, right? The largest action of them all, the burning of a ski resort uh, outside of Vail, you know, insurance paid for it, right? right. And in some cases, you know, uh, the logging company headquarters were just built back bigger, right? And, and in so doing, you know, not only had the end result not been achieved, the environmental movement as a whole had been demonized, right? Therefore, in some people's minds, justifying hardline action against them, right? So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just that uh, this thing has, this sort of thing has gone out of fashion or that, uh, you know, fascism has kind of come down against it, but rather that it proved l less effective um, than those who were involved with it um, certainly hoped for. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Susan DeFreitas about her first novel, Hot Season. It's interesting how, if we look at environmental activism today, uh, how much it's resonating with Hot Season in the sense that we have a pipeline protest in your book, and we have, obviously, the Dakota Access Pipeline that's going on now in North Dakota, and also these issues of, of uh, infiltration of the FBI within uh, these activist groups and, and questions about surveillance and in general in, in the United States. Um, we were talking before the show started, you and I, about the rise of activist literature. So I'd love to hear your you maybe speaking a little bit about your perception of whether Hot Season's taking part in a, in a cultural moment in terms of uh, a new wave of, of art and literature coming out now. Yeah, well, it's, it's really, I have to say, kind of 
a little uh, surprising to me. It also pleases me. But at the point when I wrote this book, I feel like uh, nobody knew what to make of it, you know. And a a lot of people were really not sure uh, what I was trying to do, right? It wasn't like, oh, yeah, this is part of this particular, you know, um, thread or or genre or emerging, you know, uh, subject matter in literary fiction. Um, and so, uh, you know, of course, I had heard of Jonathan Franzen's purity. Um, but to me, the kind of world that I'm writing from and the kind of world that an author like Franzen is writing from are just not only on opposite sides of the country, they're like really worlds away from each other, right? So it really did not occur to me that there would be any connection there. But you know, um, Megan Burbank, the books editor of um, The Mercury, who was kind enough uh, this week to review Hot Season favorably, um, you know, in a Twitter conversation we were having, um, she was saying, you know, not only did she not quite care for... uh, uh, Jonathan Franzen's take on activist literature via purity. Um, she, she also didn't quite care for Nell Zink's take on it in Nicotine. You know, um, I remember a recent Harper's article about Nell Zink's work, and the title of which is "Are You Kidding?" Right. And so there's a little bit of a sense there of like, oh, are you just poking fun of? at people or like where do you do you mean this do you not are are these your politics are these just is this just a style is this just a sort of humor um and you know in that conversation with Megan I I pointed out you know there it it's very challenging to write uh politically oriented fiction that succeeds as art right um I remember a lovely interview you did with uh, George Saunders, right, where you're talking a little bit of like, oh, how do your political ideals work into your fiction? Fiction, He said, oh, they're like shy animals, right? right? You have to pretend you're not interested in them, which I think is a wonderful quote. Um, But I also, I personally really feel like um, you should know where the author's heart is coming from. You should know where the author is from. You should know where the author's heart is. You should know where the author is coming from. And that does not uh, preclude uh, achieving, hopefully, any of the many layers of complexity uh, with regard to character that are, is the hallmark of literary fiction. You know? And I think a really good example of that is uh, Carrie Luna's book, The Revolution of Every Day, right? Um, it... it it succeeds as literary fiction in so many ways. And, and yet you can really tell where the author's heart is. You can tell what her ideals are. You can tell where she stands, you know. And it occurred to me on the, on the way over here that it, it is a somewhat revolutionary thing to do to simply foreground the lives of people who are relatively at the fringes of society um, and shine the a spotlight on them with saying you know through fiction saying these characters are worthy of the type of 
examination that only literary fiction uh, regularly does, right? So there, there's something achieved simply by the framing, right? But then beyond that, I think, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what are the powerful emotions aroused by this work? I think it's not just enough to make fun of the foibles of the left, you know. And I mean, there's plenty to make fun of, you right. know. But I really think uh, you got to throw your hat in the ring uh, for what you believe, you know, and where you stand, especially in times such as this, you know. And I think a, a fabulous example um, in recent literature, again, speaking to this kind of uh, trend of activist literary fiction, um, Sunil Yapa's Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist, you know. Another book that you can, it, it achieves this kind of kaleidoscopic uh, layering of perspective, um, not unlike um, Colin McCann's wonderful book. Uh, I'm trying to recall the name. I know Colin was, was one of Sunil's uh, mentors. Um, Let the Great World Spin, right? Um, there's this kaleidoscopic layering of uh, POV and perspective, beautiful literary fiction, right? Arises, er, arouses strong emotions, takes many sides, right? That book um, takes the point of view of both the police officers assigned to police the uh, WTA protests and those involved in the protests. Um, but again, you can feel where the author's heart is. You can feel where he stands, and and that's what I strive to do. Well, given that you're a you're a teacher of writing as well as a, a writer, and you've, you're discussing really well the the danger of um, perhaps not being earnest enough of 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 too much irony when portraying these issues, um, but when you're dealing with political subjects like environmentalism and surveillance um, and questions of philosophy around how to engage w direct action or otherwise. Um, do you have advice for writers with regards to conveying political thought within the framework of a story without being too didactic? Or so the opposite problem of being ironic, maybe your, your heart is in the right place and it's clear, but you're not actually creating uh, literature because mm. you're, you're so invested yes. in the in the um political ideals uh, any any thoughts there sure and you know it's like skill and charybdis trying to get between those two you know the 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 bleeding heart you know beat you over the head with my politics uh versus the ironic cool ironic distance that keeps anything from ha really accruing any uh mm, emotion Right. Or, or really being moving. Um, so, you know, between those two ideals, I think, you know, in many places, it's a matter of tone. You know, I can't really say uh, do this and you'll you know, shoot right between those two, those two <laughs> uh, perils. But humor is your friend always, you know, um, in in developing the voice that I wanted uh, for Hot Season, the, the voice that kind of tuned in the story for me, I returned to uh, Ed Abbey and I returned to John Nichols because 
those uh, two outlaws, literary outlaws of the Southwest, um, who wrote about environmental uh, struggles. A lot of Southwest authors write about environmental struggles. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to not to write the, about them if you love the Southwest. Um, but a little humor makes that medicine go down, right? It makes that earnestness kind of slough off, right? Mm -hmm. So it gives people a place to stand who may not share all of your ideals, you know. Um, humor is a great universal. Um, but I think on the other hand, you know, the shades of gray are always your friend because no, in interrogating your own beliefs, um, you will undoubtedly find, uh, you know, cases where they don't hold true, where it, if taken to extremes, uh, they result in things that are horrifying to you. Um, and, and third, um, you know, you, we can t take issue, we can um, stand to one side, we can feel divided against um, somebody who is simply trying to put forward their worldview as if we should adopt it. But when you portray a character's worldview, you know, and, and give them the literary depth and the contradictions that make for complexity... Uh, it's it's harder to argue with that, mm -hmm. you know, because that's simply what somebody believes, you know. And, um, you know, there are many things that people, uh, characters in novels uh, believe that we do not, you know, uh, and yet we love them, you know, and we want to see how they navigate the world, um, where their heart is, and how their point of view shifts and changes over time. So again, that movement of the, the character arc uh, as it moves through a book is, is a big key to that as well. well. I'd like to quote something you've said before on this topic, um, because you end in something that I'm, I'm curious about. You say, I think we're quite wary of any talk of meaning in fiction, but to my mind, if the events of the story and the characters' inner issues don't align in a meaningful way. It isn't a story. It's just a sequence of events. And though this approach is unusual for acad academic creative writing programs, I've found a lot of validation for it in the emerging body of brain science associated with reading fiction. Can you talk to us about the brain science you're referring to? I, it just I, it, it piqued my interest, if you, if you know of, uh, of anything off the top of your head. Oh, sure, absolutely. So... Um... I think the the person who has really done the most work to articulate this, um, both to gather together the the research um, from the emerging body of neuroscience associated with uh, reading and writing fiction, um, as well as the practices to put it um, to use, is a woman named Lisa Cron. Um, she wrote the book Wired for Story, um, which is kind of the brain science book. And then her uh, new book is called Story Genius, which mm. is kind of her, you know, maybe not patented, but very much a proprietary system for uh, how, for, for the way that she coaches clients. And she is both a book coach and a screenwriting consultant, right? 
So uh, number one, I love that because um, MFA world and screenwriting world, uh, in my experience, they speak very different language. And they're both talking about story, but they speak in very different terms, right? And there are things that I love about each of those schools of thought about story, you know? I love that um, the MFA world, the kind of literary fiction approach to teaching uh, creative writing and storytelling is super open-ended, right? Because my feeling is that the novel can take so many forms, some of which are still undreamt of, right, that... Uh, those who teach uh, creative writing at the graduate level, they don't want to kick themselves later by saying, hey, kid, this is the way it works. You got to fit inside this box or, you know, you're not what you will have written will not be a novel. Right. Um, Novel means new. Right. So it's always changing all the time. However, I found myself rather frustrated um, in graduate school by statements like, oh, I don't think, th- I love this story, but I don't think it's found its aboutness yet, you know? Or, well, you know, you have to just keep rewriting that story until you find the voice for it. Then you'll have the story. And, and a wonderful uh, kind of <clears throat> strong uh voice that has risen somewhat in opposition to that school of teaching creative writing comes from uh, Ben Percy, Benjamin Percy. There's a wonderful book of essays out called Thrill Me, um, which is all on the craft of writing. And uh, they're based largely on um, craft talks that he gave at Pacific University, um, of which I'm a graduate. And he leans on story. He leans on uh, action. He leans on drama, you know, actually having a plot, creating suspense. He pulls a lot from movies, from the screenwriting world in, in uh, making the type of statements that he does. And I um, found those craft talks very refreshing during my time at Pacific. Um, and I recommend that book, absolutely. But it wasn't until I, and I studied uh, some of the screenwriting approach, some of Robert McKee's book, uh, Story. Um, And, you know, so screenwriting can be super prescriptive, right? You know, there there has to be that uh, rising action. They have these different uh, uh, acts. They have, uh, you know, right down to the beat, you know. And and Robert McKee's so prescriptive to the point where, you know, he recommends that every scene, in every scene, your main character, um, one character starts with more power than the other, and by the end of the scene, those positions are reversed, right? Mm. Things going well to things going badly. Things going badly to things going well. I love how prescriptive that is because, you know, I found when I put that to work in my scenes, like, wow, that really got some things moving, right? But at the same time, isn't art so much bigger than that, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to write a novel based on the Save the Cat uh, beat sheet, right? <laughs> Which is like, once you learn that form and you watch movies, you will see the same things happen at the same point 
throughout uh, a movie. It's amazing how widely adopted that form is. But so what is this brain science? The brain science that uh, Lisa Kron has kind of uh, pulled together basically says, like, you know, in, in the study of creative writing, uh, we're often told, well, your character has to want something. Kurt Vonnegut says your character has to want something even if it's as simple as a glass of water. Well, Lisa kind of articulates why that is, right? She says if, if you're not, if you don't know what the character wants, it's like watching football with the sound turned off and you don't know the rules, right? So, you know, that person took this action. They kicked the ball, right? Half of the crowd stood up and cheered, right? The other half looked kind of glum, you know? Now they're moving back to this point. It's like, if you don't know what people want, you can't read it. You can't, and moreover, you can't feel it, right? So um, that's just one of the things that she has kind of, it, to my mind, she takes a lot of the kind of aphorisms that were taught in creative writing and tells us kind of why in terms of, the brain science. Um, so I've kind of wandered around. This is huge territory to cover. I'll kind of try to do my best. Um, there is this idea that when we, uh, again, coming out of the neuroscience, that when we put on, when we read fiction, we put on the point of view of the point of view character. We essentially become that person, right? And we run... Uh, the when we read about somebody drinking a glass of water, the same part of our brain lights up as if we were actually doing it, right? It it is a kind of virtual reality. It is the original type of virtual reality. And interestingly enough, apparently the same thing happens when we're dreaming. So you could say that story, uh, particularly fiction, is a means of hijacking the dream state. Uh, the dream function of the brain, right? And so when we tell creative writing students, oh, use physical details, right? Use the senses. It, it's all part of creating that virtual reality that actually causes us to feel like we're living it, right? So another question that comes out of the neuroscience of fiction, what is the purpose of story, Right? What is the evolutionary, what is the adaptive purpose of story, right? Well, the best guess that we have at this point, that neuroscientists and others have at this point, is that story is there to prepare us for obstacles and struggles we have not yet faced, right? So in a very early example of this, you know, rather than, you know, Waiting until you get mauled by a saber-toothed tiger, you could listen to a story of somebody who was almost mauled and managed to get away because they did X, Y, or Z. Now, that obviously is an example that, you know, you're, you're listening for the useful part. You are listening for the part that can save your life, right? And so what is a story, you know, in this day and age, we're, our, um, the obstacles we face are largely not saber-toothed tigers, right? They're largely not of a physical nature. They have to do with navigating, navigating the social sphere, right? And, and also navigating, you know, difficulty, trauma, grief, divorce, like all these things that we have to deal with in our life, right? So 
part of uh, Lisa Kron's uh, proposition is that it is through the character arc of the story that we track as readers for things that we might be able to use in terms of our own life, right? And, you know, again, that's to for things like getting through grief, you know, the death of a loved one, making it through a divorce, or navigating an extreme uh, survival situation even, right? You know, I'm, I'm editing a story right now that actually details an extreme survival scenario. It's based on real events. Like, talk about an adaptive function, right? Mm-hmm. So the reason that we, that story is so seductive to us, that it, 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 penetrates the dreaming brain it gets our attention it makes us forget about the real people in our, in our life who need our attention you know much more pressing things when we're really in a story is because there is there's the promise there that where something is going to be revealed to us of great value that we could then use later on our li- on in our life and that is all through the character arc of the story that is not through just watching the game with the sound turned off, not knowing what the rules are, right? So I feel strongly about um, the way character arc and plot arc can work together to create meaning. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer and editor Susan DeFreitas about her latest book, Hot Season. Maybe this is a good time for people to hear a little bit of the prose. Do you have a section you'd be willing to read? Um. I'll read to you from chapter one. Uh, The name of the chapter is Pyrophytic, and this is from the point of view of Varel. Winters in Krastop were generally mild, despite the altitude. That was one of the things Varel liked about her college town, the way snow was no more than a novelty, a snow globe fantasy of soft, swirling flakes that melted away the next day like a dream. But the winter of her senior year snapped hard and cold with temps in the teens and brought so much snow that it shut the town down. She was almost happy to go home to Pittsburgh for the holidays, where at least the roads were plowed. But her boyfriend, Trevor, was increasingly vague on the phone, and by the time New Year's rolled around, she had begun to suspect that he hadn't driven to Mendocino to see his sister the way he'd claimed that he'd stayed in Crestop instead. Why? And why had he lied about it? It was clear from the moment she walked in the door. Someone had left a peachy pink windbreaker on the coat rack by the wood stove. Someone had left a jar of honeysuckle soap on the ceramic dish by the sink. Someone had been sleeping in her bed and cuddling with her cat and using her loofah to buff her butt for all she knew. That someone was Trina, a perky adventure education major with chiseled biceps. Trevor had been meaning to tell Rel about her, but he'd felt like Rel would be mad. Well, no kidding, she wanted to say, and a few choice things as well. But it was all so immature and awkward and awful that her voice never made it past the hard lump that had formed in her throat. At that point, nothing she could have said would have made a difference anyway. The happy couple was long past the love goggles stage and onto the type of passive-aggressive bickering that had taken Rel and Trevor years to achieve. What she wanted more than anything, then, was her own space, a clear, sunny space with sweeping views where she could sit and sip her tea in the mornings. 
Calendar space and sink space, free of Trevor's dishes. Wall space and head space, free of his reggae posters and glassware, the reek of his pot. A quiet space of her own where she could lay out the maps and cuttings associated with her senior project, which centered on those perverse plants of the Southwest that required fire to germinate. But the breakup arrived at the beginning of January, which was the wrong time of year for space in Crestop. Moreover, space cost the kind of money Trevor had, but she did not. So Rel was forced to take up residence in her final semester in a room the size of a shoebox in a janky old rat trap in the barrio, which, for the record, was surrounded by all manner of noise. Domestic altercations, house parties, smack-talking little eight-year-old hoods, and wholly lacking in views, unless you counted the two built-down mobile homes across the alley out back. There was a yard, at least, with space for a garden, which was something she'd wanted that Trevor had not. But the house itself was full of tacky linoleum and questionable carpet, and had been rented by students for so long that no one had any idea who half the furniture in it belonged to. Fortunately for Rel, it was also so drafty that the two freshmen who'd signed the lease were looking for a roommate in the off-season just to help them cover the heat. You've been listening to Susan DeFreitas read from Hot Season. Susan, you've been lauded for getting the details right uh, regarding this alternative community of, of fledgling activists, and I imagine part of that's your own experience at Prescott College. But you yourself also grew up in an alternative community. Can, can you talk a little bit about that experience and how maybe growing up in an alternative community informs the narrative of this book? Sure. I mean, <laughs> it involves it informs almost er- every narrative I write um, because it's it's just so central to my r- worldview. Uh, I grew up in what I call an unintentional community. <laughs> it was really a group of um, folks who wanted to get back to the land um, in the late 1970s. And they were all interested in farming. They moved to um, West Michigan uh, in the late 70s and early 80s and formed a food co-op, which was really like a buying, a natural foods buying uh, co-op, because there were no whole foods, of course, at that time. And there wasn't even a funky little, you know, co-op grocery um, in West Michigan um, at that time. Uh, I come from a town of about 2,000 people, Hart, Michigan, which is the county seat. So that should tell you something about how rural the rest of the county is. Most of our friends lived out um, in in really what are the boonies of a place called Ferry. Um, and so they, you know, all these uh, couples had kids around the same time. All of those people are really my family members. Um, I call them my co-op cousins. Uh, a lot of them stayed where we grew up, but a number of them moved uh, out west. And we're all still very close. Um, many of them are who stayed back home are raising the third generation of our co-op there. Um, but really, in terms of how how that informs my uh, my worldview and my stance as a as an as a writer, is that um, I think. A lot of narratives that seem 
somewhat fringe uh, to folks who grew up in more mainstream circumstances uh, are are the most are they're mainstream to me, <laughs> right? They're very normal to me. Um, and uh, there's something about that mainstreaming of it, that normalization of it, that is important to me. You know, e- e- even just one part of my experience growing up in such a small place, such a rural place, right? I uh, I never saw people any who had lives anything like uh, my own, my friends, or even uh, the the folks in town uh, on TV, right? I to me, uh, TV narratives happened in uh, cities or in the suburbs, uh, and I remember the first time out of kind of the chatter of adult voices droning on Charlie Brown style in the background, I remember hearing Garrison Keillor's voice on the radio. And as a kid and realizing that he was talking about someone from a small town, he was talking about people uh, from the country, from the Midwest, from where I was. And I think that was an experience that spoke to me. Um, It just told me how much it could mean to people whose narratives were not typically represented to have themselves represented in art. Um, I think the other way that growing up in this kind of back to the land community influences my fiction is that we grew up in hand-built houses and they're very cool houses, many of them, right? Um, built by our parents, built, uh, in, in many ways through a lot of group labor on the part of our co-op. We are kind of like a hippie version of Amish that way, right? Mm. We actually had a barn raising. I remember from when I was a kid, we would have work parties, and, and these houses uh, have kind of reinforced to me, you know, there's some statement about like, you know, the architecture of the buildings that we spend our lives in uh, really influences the way that what we're able to think of, the way that we're able to imagine the world. And growing up in these sort of houses influenced me to believe that it, you could make a world, you could make the world different. You could remake the world, right? And I find that uh, throughout various different stories, I always need to know th- what buildings uh, my stories are set in. You know, what is the aesthetic uh, created by them? So uh, that's maybe a little uh, not directly connected, but uh, something I have found to be true. Now, as far as, you know, my alternative community and Prescott, I didn't just go there for college. I lived in Prescott, Arizona for 14 years, right? And I directed a community and arts uh, festival, arts nonprofit there. I got to be the ringleader, um, you could say, of a, of a huge show, you know, um, big cultural arts festival. And so I really got to have a sense for all these different tribes, you know, the uh, the pyro maniacs of Tucson, the underground circus culture of Denver, you know, a lot of um, these different performance communities um, based throughout the West, and uh, a lot of them very connected to um, activism um, in their art. So all of that uh, informs uh, my work. And you were in a, a traveling circus as well, that 
we called ourselves a circus. I would say we were actually much more in the vein of vaudeville. My, my question about that, your experience of that, and maybe the way a couple of characters seem to hint at uh, uh, a lifestyle similar mm-hmm. to that is um, that I know you write both realist uh, literature and fantastical literature. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if that was maybe one entry point in a book that is squarely realist to bring in the fantastic. Uh, maybe another way to ask the same question is, were there ways in which you you wanted to try to bring magic into a book that was squarely in the world that we recognize? I always want to bring magic into the world that we recognize. Um, and in some ways, I chafe against the constraints of realism um, that way. But, you know, even my speculative stories, they're always set I'm in this world, right? So whatever you call it, uh, wherever it uh, the work gets shelved in a bookstore or online. I'm always working the same vein, right, which is uh, where the sense of magic uh, enters the real world. Um, and you'll, you'll see that absolutely in the circus. You know, um, it's kind of the bookends, right, of uh, hot season. It starts with a traveling uh, underground circus performer, and it ends with some traveler's tales, told by a a group called the Dead Man's Revival, um, which is on tour, right? Um, And so, yeah, that circus is based out of, you know, the the Black Cat, the activist community center in this book, is a a center for travelers, activists, artists of all all stripes, right? So, yeah, I managed to get a a little magic in there through the circus, one would hope. But, you know, one of the things I really found... um, a lot of the stories that would later become hot season, I wrote during my first couple of semesters at, um, at Pacific University in my uh, MFA program. And I really, you know, it was the first time in my life where I'd really like sat down like, okay, I'm going to write realist fiction. I'm going to figure out how this is done, right? And, and a big part of the impulse was uh, to... Uh, my nostalgia for uh, the high desert, which I had left, right? Um, I wanted to master the techniques of realism to portray this place that I loved and these people that I'd loved and this struggle, which is really important to me. But I really found myself after a certain point of like working hard at this for a long time. And, you know, you're in graduate school, you're working with people who are kind of famous. You want to you want to produce good work, right? Um, and under these very tight time constraints, which I found very, very stressful, right? But there was a certain point where I kind of felt like it was just, fiction was just this glorified version of like what we did when we were kids with like two dolls or puppets where it's just like, <laughs> you know, you're just making these like puppets like walk to the door and now somebody's got to say something to each other and blah, blah, blah. I just found it like that is not the part that made me fall in love with fiction. And I found it the most exhausting to reproduce. Right. So I really had to ask myself, well, what what got you into this? What do you read for? Like what? makes it more than just actions and reactions and plot to you 
you know. And so I kind of interrogated that and came up with this response, uh, which is aesthetic, right? I like to read for what a, a, the world of a book feels like, right? And, and out of pos- all po- – and again, that's part of why um, environments, built environments and natural environments are really important to me when I sit down to write. Um, but when I interrogated aesthetic, I, what I really found was like, you know, if, if we're going to talk about the aesthetic that I associate with the high desert – uh, the the magic, the sense of magic that envelops this, a summer's night is, is, is really a touchstone for me, right? It's a place where uh, the real and the imagined are, you know, uh, occupy a same level in your depth perception, right? Um, where the air is somewhat the same temperature as your skin, there's this this sense of like a fluidness between things that normally have a, a firm boundary, uh, and and animals are out at night and people are out at night and you can absolutely hike by the light of the moon, right? And um, so that environment, that underwater full moon summer's night in the high desert, was such an inspiration to me um, that I. I kind of brought that forward in a in a story of its own at the time, um, which my poor mentor Thisbe uh, Nissen, who had me that semester. You know, I, I was throwing together dreams. I was throwing together this night hike. I was throwing together the surrealism of of American flags, like absolutely everywhere you looked um, at the at this certain. Uh, point in time where the book is set, but there was no plot, right? There, and and at that time, the characters involved in that story, I didn't know who they were or what they were doing or anything. I wrote the aesthetic first, mm. right? And then built it down, down, down um, to the point where it's firmly connected to plot. It's firmly connected to character. But I learned something throughout that process was like that magic of aesthetic that comes first for me and I can build my castles in the air down to the ground, but I have to start up there. Well, you mentioned that hot season started as stories Mm -hmm. and we have three women protagonists who come from different classes and are at different um, levels of education within the press, within the deep Canyon college uh, school system. And they all have different relationships to their comfort or lack of comfort with mm. how to engage with the pipeline protest. Um, and I, I assumed that part of the reason we get multiple points of view is the original origin of this book being short stories that were told from different perspectives. Mm. But I'm curious about the both the process and the um, desire to take the stories and and fuse them into a novel versus having written a short story collection, for instance? <laughs> well, I'll tell you first, the process was arduous. And two, uh, the desire was very basic, which is simply to have something publishable as a book. But, you know, um, I... I had an affection for the the short story cycle, the linked short story form, 
Um, and for this, I blame uh, an undergraduate mentor, uh, Kenny Cook, K.L. Cook, um, who taught a, a class on the subject. I really fell for uh, the linked uh, uh, stories uh, as a form in and of itself, uh, Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine in particular. Um, and so when I uh, went to graduate school, I thought, you know, here's a way to kind of learn, you know, in the course of these um, discrete stories that are workshopable, right? Um, but then kind of uh, be able to possibly parlay that into an actual book. Um, you know, we'd all heard um, as students that selling a collection of stories was much harder than selling a novel. I thought, oh, well, I'll just do a linked form, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but how linked, right? And what is the market for a linked story collection. You know, when I really went out to uh, to try to shop it around, I found that it was certainly not any easier to try to place linked stories than it was to try to place a collection of stories, right? But I also found, you know, and, and it was really only when it was pointed out to me by the publisher that what people call a novel at this time is far looser than it used to be, right? Um, people have taken great risks um, with expanding that form. You know, David Mitchell is, is an example, right? So, uh, you know, they kind of said to me, well, we'll accept this book, but we'll call it a novel. And I said, you know what? David Mitchell is David Mitchell, but if I'm going to call this a novel, I'm going to make this a novel because I am a person who has certain expectations, right? Um, especially for, you know, somebody I've never heard of, right? If I'm going to read something, oh, this sounds like a cool book. I've never heard of this author. It says it's a novel. I know what expectations I would have. So then I really kind of worked hard to meet those expectations. But, you know, this was part three of, <laughs> okay, the first step in the process, I wrote stories in undergrad. Um, when I graduated, I fleshed them out into a much larger manuscript, um, which is, I conceived of it as three, uh, three linked cycles covering three years in the same place based around the same struggle um, to save the river um, that fit into one book, right? But that book, you know, proved too long or not, you know, not ready yet, right? And also people had no idea what I was trying to do with that either. So I thought, you know, these stories at the beginning, they're, they're most closely related. I, I've worked on them the most. I'll try to sell them as a linked cycle. Found that the one you know, the publisher I liked the most who was interested did refuse to put the word stories on the cover, right? They were going to call it a novel no matter what it was. So then I began the process over the course of a year of actually turning that into a novel. Mm -hmm. So my ultimate vision at this point is to perform the same grueling process on the next two books that originally composed this one manuscript. 
and then perhaps at some point in the future to bring them all gloriously together under one book uh, title as I originally envisioned. But we'll see. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's an interesting, it sounds fascinating, difficult, but fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us, tell us what the n- title means mm. or what your thoughts are on the title and also Pyrophytic, which is the name of your chapbook and mm-hmm. also one of the chapters of the book. So if, if you could just maybe orient us to your choice for both of those, that would be interesting. Sure. Well, you know, um, <laughs> it was fun. I did a, the old Google alert, you know, for m- the title of my blog. Just it's something authors do to see if they're getting mentioned. Well, for hot season, I got all sorts of, you know, meteorological, you know, information being, oh, the season's going to be hot, blah, blah, blah. It was like, but it was all only th- through the summer, right? So I got a lot of summer weather uh, warnings. Whereas, you know, in Arizona, in, in Prescott, uh, where I lived, the monsoons start, the, the rainy season starts uh, the day, pretty much the day after, like July 5th, right? So the rodeo comes and goes, and then you finally, then the heat breaks and you get the monsoons. It's funny because here in Portland, uh, July 5th is largely when you can finally count on the rain going away, right? (laughs) Um, So the really hot season uh, in Prescott, uh, in my experience, was always May and June, right? And so it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't summer, it's this own, it's the season of its own. And Prescott has a lot of that, right? Because the monsoons are just a very dramatic time of amazing thunderstorms. You know, that's July and August. And like, and during that time, you get cicada season. And there's like, there's the time when the cottonwoods let loose their fluff. And it looks like it's snowing all the time, even though it's hot out, you know. It's a magical place to me in its uh, very particular um uh, season sometimes a year. So hot season number one is, uh, it's speaking to that time of year before the monsoons break, when the temperature can get into the triple digits, right? When things get surreal. Um, but you know, of course it also refers to, a, a hot political climate, right? A time when, um, you might find yourself in hot water, you know, just for trying to do something that you believe in, just for trying to stand up um, for uh, for a cause. And so, you know, we're now in a in a whole new <laughs> iteration of a hot season, right? Um, a time when um, people are definitely on alert, right? And uh, we're we're definitely aware of uh, increased danger um, to those who stick their stick their neck out as activists. Mm. I'd love to pivot to the writer as a, a public person. I think for a lot of writers, um, the public aspect once the book is out is a difficult time for people who are potentially interior and private. But you, you have a background as a marketer, and you seem to also have a certain facility and comfort in terms of the way in which you are in the world with the birth of hot season into the world. And so I was hoping we could talk about it a little bit. I've watched some of, of what you've done to promote the book, mm-hmm. and, and 
various different clever ways. And I'm sure there'd be um, some interest from audience who are writers to hear about the process uh, or tips around um, promoting your book when you have a small press for mm-hmm. obviously lots of small presses don't have the, the means to send people on book tour or to um, do ads in the New York times book review. Mm-hmm. So it, it really falls on the shoulders of, of the writer. And um, do you feel like we could, we could talk a little bit about some of the, the things that you've discovered in this being your first your book out in the world and and what you've encountered? Sure. I mean, um, part of it is that uh, it's hard for me to really know what I've done, what about it is unusual or remarkable yeah. because it all seems very pretty straightforward to me. But again, yeah, I do have a background in marketing. So, uh, well, I mean, I could mention some things. Sure. Yeah, please. <laughs> like you, you offered um, to 25 people. Mm. Uh, a free copy of the book if they agreed to when they finished it to write an Amazon review. And the logic behind that is that I believe is that once you have 25 reviews on Amazon, there's a metric around Mm -hmm. Amazon that makes you appear more as a book. And so it's beneficial to the book to have 25 or more reviews. And so by offering this offer, uh, people get a free book. You get 25 reviews on Amazon. I haven't seen anyone else do that. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, again, I, I didn't come up with that. That was, um, that is a tactic that was developed by Tim Grawl, who is the author of your first thousand copies, which is a very slim, uh, book about, uh, book marketing. Um, but I definitely recommend it. I mean, there's nothing earth-shattering in there for anybody who has any background in marketing, particularly internet marketing, you know. Um, but he specifically applies it to uh, to books. You know, there's a lot of tactics that come from the the land of internet marketing that work better for nonfiction authors than they do for fiction authors. I'll I'll speak to that in a moment. But I, you know, I'm I'm geeky about this stuff. I'm interested in it. I've been reading about it for years. Right. I've been <laughs> I've been writing for a long time and anticipating this moment when I actually had a book in the world. So I really just I kind of threw everything at it that I knew of. Um, and, you know, part of the tactic with the 25, co- 25 reviews on Amazon on opening day is that you're not offering physical books. You're offering uh, an ebook, which costs you nothing, right? Um, so it's really a way of leveraging your people, right? And, and part of the, what I found along the way, it's like, and I know this too, I'm sure you do as well, we'd love to be a part of somebody's story, you know, especially at the point where they're really about to do something hugely meaningful to themselves, you know, whether it's, you know, help me get to Africa for this once in a lifetime, you know, educational opportunity, or, you know, help me get cross country to see, you know, my best friend for the one night that they're going to be, you know, in this country, whatever it is, right? We, we love being part of those sorts of things. And, Oftentimes, you know, people uh, speak about crowdfunding in those terms, right, as uh, giving people an opportunity to participate in your story and get swept up in the narrative. And to, but you know, it, I really feel like it's 
money is a pretty shallow way to be involved in somebody else's life. It's a wonderful way. I have a crowdfunding. <laughs> I have a Patreon as well. But, you know, there should there are deeper main means of engagement, you know, and um, I had almost twice as many people as I needed who were they were so gung ho, you know, and of course they'd known me for years. They'd known that I was always that this was my dream and I was always working on a book. Right. So they they uh, they got in in the queue to be on that list, you know, and then all those people, you know, they kind of formed like my core team of of leveragers and signal boosters and they they not only performed the action that I was asking of them they super went above and beyond right so what a beautiful way to make something that could otherwise you know authors hate talking oh it's me me my thing blah 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 and doing that made it about my team you know, and all my people being in for me all at the same time and kind of hitting it hard, which was great, right? Another uh, tactic that I've ad- adopted out of um, Tim Grawl's book, you know, he uh, uh, and other internet marketing uh, experts really agree that your email list is your is the most important thing, is your most important asset as an author, right? And so they always recommend things like, oh, you know, on your website, you got to have your little um, pop-up that offers some, a little ebook or a white paper of great value or, you know, a checklist or something, right? Some kind of carrot incentive to get people to sign up for your newsletter. And then you have to deliver this top quality content on your newsletter for free, which then, you know is going to inspire people eventually to buy the thing that you're selling. And again, some of those tactics have got to be adapted because people who write fiction, you know, it's uh, we're not going to give away polished fiction in our newsletter for free. And frankly, people don't want to read that much fiction, right? It's not this type of like easy to write, easy to consume, top tips, blah, 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 right? So, but... So I really sought for ways, like, how can I make this work as a fiction writer, right? Well, one of the things I do is that I'm also a poet, and I have a little um, poem that was published in an online magazine called Zoomorphic, and the name of the poem is Genesis. So I created um, this kind of fold-up poem uh, with some artwork that I did, Um, it, it looks like a little book, but it's a single sheet of paper folded, folded, folded. And I got this tactic actually from, um, from Chloe Daly's wonderful store, uh, Reading Frenzy, because I'd, I'd found this in the little zine section there. I was like, how cool is that? It's a single piece of paper that looks like a little book. Well, if you sign up for my mailing list at any event where I'm reading, you get one of these cute little books, right? Mm. And I have another version of it, you know, online. So, you know, I've looked for ways to adapt best practices um, from, you know, different marketing experts in ways that feel authentic and real and artful. And uh, I guess just kind of share my story, too, right? Because it's not just the work that I produce. It's this whole other side that um, is is 
my story as an author, right? Um, and I guess maybe I'm a little somewhat different from, I mean, I like to say that my superpower as a writer is that I'm actually an extrovert, which is very, I have found rare um, among writers. But, you know, I, I also used to be a stage performer, so I'm happy to get up in front of people and talk about all this stuff, you know. I'm also a teacher, educator, blah, blah, blah. So I guess I have not been reluctant to share my story as an author, my journey to publication, the struggles that I've faced, um, the struggles that I've overcome, the way, the many, many, many ways that um, people have helped me, you know. And uh, over and over again, I've found ways to, you know, not just share my story, but to share the the ways that my story is bigger than me, right? Um, so, well, based on that, let me. I want to um, repeat back another thing that you've you've said previously. You said that your chief values as a professional include literary citizenship and community, and that fandom is the foundation of the creative life. Absolutely. And I'm curious if you could elaborate on that second part, on fandom as the foundation of the creative life. What, what does that mean? Uh, I will illustrate it in my experience of two, a tale of two conferences, one of which is the AWP, Associated Writing Programs Conference. I went to, my first one was in Seattle, I forget, and it was a few years back now. And within three weeks, I was back up to Seattle for my very first NorwestCon, which is a fantasy and science fiction conference. To me, the difference in experience I had between those two conferences set, uh, it clarified to me a value uh, in my own creative life that I strive to uh, exemplify. Um, at AWP, I really felt the sense that, um, you know, again, I did not have a book out. I did not even have a book under contract at that point, right? So I, I really felt the sense of like this uh, kind of jockeying for position or statement of status and sort of like if you're not part of the clique associated with this press or this journal or this graduate program, it's really like, you know, standing against the wall at the, at the middle school dance, right? Feeling like you're not part of the cool kids club. Um, and that's not to disparage AWP. That's just my experience there, right? I went, when I went back with a book to promote, I found, a, you know, I had a very different experience, right? Um, but, you know, three weeks after that first AWP in Seattle, when I went to NorWestCon, and granted, I, I was there to, as a panelist, but I really found that whether, you know, somebody was just, you know, a, a guy and his, you know, odd homemade cosplay uh, outfit sitting in the corner doing some odd handcraft or, or, you know, the most famous person there, you know, the, the keynote speaker, there was this great sense of camaraderie and a great sense of devotion 
to the canon, to the greats of the form, right? There's absolutely nobody there who was too cool to talk to me about Ursula Le Guin or, or the, the fraught politics of Sherry Tepper or, or Asimov or, I mean, you go down the list, right? And I, that's one thing I've really found in the fantasy and sci-fi community is that people are fans first, right? No matter how accomplished that they may be um, in terms of being an author, they identify as fans first. And I really strive to be that in the literary world. I am absolutely a fan first, you know? And, and it, you know, when I, the, the authors that, whose work I am devoted to, I, they're, <laughs> I am an endless font of enthusiasm, right? And I am always uh, happy to uh, discover new authors as well, you know? So it's not, it, some of it is, you know, here are the established authors who have established this conversation that I want to continue that conversation. I want to further their legacy. I want to connect with other people working in that lineage who want to carry on that conversation, number one. Number two, there are people whose, whose work I consider to be genius. You know, I think Monica Drake is one of them, Lydia Yuknovich, uh, Lydia Millet. You know, I, I will do anything I can to bring their work to a larger readership. You know, not because I have some great standing, right? Uh, just because I love it, right? And then three, you know, there are people just coming up, you know, whose work is largely unknown. And if I have the opportunity, if I actually do have some standing to be able to help them, I'll, I'm so happy to be able to use it. And like mm. between those those three things, like that's, that's what I mean about fandom as the basis of a creative life. Well, pivoting to your fans, what can your fans expect from you next? I'm imagining probably book two of the trilogy. Mm -hmm. And are there any other things on the horizon oh, that we could? so many things on the horizon. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, okay. Um, so the next book in the Green River Chronicles is called World's Smallest Parade. Um, it's uh, definitely, I wouldn't say it's a, a sequel in that it's not like the main characters from Hot Season uh, are the main characters in this book, um, although there are some characters who run throughout all three. Um, but World's Smallest Parade, uh, you know, whereas Hot Season was sort of about these three young women activists in college, kind of college novel, coming-of-age novel. Um, World's Smallest Parade is uh, about a relationship between a young man and an older man. Um, the young man is uh, kind of on a wild quest to ride his bicycle across the United States, kind of gets uh, waylaid in an odd little mountain town that uh, will be familiar to readers of Hot Season and uh, makes uh, kind of an extraordinary friendship um, with an older man there who is the director of the nonprofit organization fighting the, the pipeline. 
Um, and those who have read Hot Season will recognize the nonprofit um, involved as the one that the main character, Rel, is is taking an internship with at the end of, of this book. So it's kind of about their extraordinary friendship. It's also about urban farming. Um, I had a lot of friends who were involved in that endeavor and, you know, doing so in the high desert has its own uh, promises and perils and uh, potentials for humor. Uh, so you'll see all that as well. Um, so that's the book closest to completion. Um, but, you know, throughout all of this publication process, um, I've also been uh, writing speculative short stories, the first of which appeared in Forest Avenue Press's uh, City of Weird anthology. Um, and so those are, and that, uh, that collection is called Dream Studies. I've toyed with the idea of, of linking the stories, but I think probably they will be standalone. Um, again, they all take place in this world, but uh, these stories definitely uh, cross over the line into exploring magic and um, uh, different uh, traditions of the speculative story, like the ghost story. Um, and... Uh, that's probably all I want to say about that. <laughs> all right. Well, it was, a, it was a real pleasure having you on the show, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. We're talking today to Susan DeFreitas, the author of Hot Season. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.